Amen. Please be seated. As you're doing so, I invite you to turn with me now to the book of Genesis, the book of Genesis chapter 17. We will take up the first half of this chapter this morning as we continue in our study of the life and of the ministry of Abram. You can also find this passage for this morning on the insert inside of your bulletin, along with a brief outline of today's message. As we consider where we've been, which is always helpful to uh, think about as we consider where we are, we found ourselves 13 years later. We left off last week at the end of chapter 16. Uh, Here we are 13 years later in the life of Abram. He had recently conceived a child with Hagar, a slave woman who Sarai gave to him to be a wife. And this son was born, and he was named Ishmael, as the angel of the Lord promised he would be so. This um, child would be a child of blessing, but not the child of blessing. He was not the one God had promised would come. He was not the one that God promised would um, continue the line of Abram. That would come through his relationship with Sarai, his wife. But here we are, he is 99 years old, and he has not seen that promise fulfilled. In some ways, you could say Genesis chapter 17, coming off of Genesis 16, is a renewal, is a reawakening, is a restoration for Abram. If you go all the way back to 15, in Genesis 15, we see a covenant promise made to Abram where God told him to kill the animals, to split them in half, to walk through them as a sign of that promise. But Abram did not walk through the animals. God did. God walked through for both parties, promising, I will uphold this covenant and I will take on the consequences if it not be so. God was so certain in them being accomplished. And then in 16, Abram says, I hear you, God, but I can do it myself. I can figure this out on my own. I can accomplish this on my own. Leads to heartache, to pain, to despair. And so in 17, he's being needed, he, 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 he is needed to be brought back. He is needed to be reminded of who he serves and who his God is and who it is that has promised these things to him. And as we see that take place in our passage, it is not Abram who defines who he is, but it is God. God defines who Abram is. And I'm so happy to say we finally have got to the passage where his name has changed and I can stop being worried if I'm saying Abram or Abraham for he's given a new name. And we see that in our text before us this morning. Would you please follow along with me as I read for us the Word of God? When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. 
For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojourning, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin. It shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. The grass may wither and the flower may fade, but the word of the Lord will stand forever. Would you please bow with me as we ask the Lord's blessing upon this time. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we are reminded of your blessing this morning. We are reminded of your covenant promise to provide a people, a a people who are yours, who are your possession, a people who are blessed by you and through you and for you. Lord, we are a part of that people. We today are reading as fulfillment of the very prophecy that we have just heard. Would we rejoice in that? Lord, would we consider who we are today before you as our first and foremost identity? Would that define us? And would we live in light of it? I pray now that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear your truth, that we might be changed by it. I pray this for your glory and for our good. In Christ's name, amen. It is helpful to ask ourselves this morning, what do we do? What do we do in seasons of chaos, of challenge, of difficulty, of strife, of hardship? Where do we go when our world, a lot of times our comfort, is challenged, when something enters in, when something breaks the norm that breaks our status quo, if you will. You know, for some people, they pour themselves into their work. For them, what they do is who they are. And they will tell you that when you talk to them. They will express that. They um, make sure that everything about them and um, what they do professionally comes out in their lives and in interactions with others. For some people, it's their relationships and, and family or family history or background. It's, I'm of this people. 
this is who we are. And when you're of this people, you're this way and you have these characteristics and this defines us. And so some people, when life gets hard, they look on to those traditions. And on some level, there's nothing wrong with this. I want to be very clear here. There's nothing wrong with identifying yourself with your profession. There's nothing wrong with identifying yourself with your family or with your background. There's nothing wrong with identifying yourself with your hobbies or things that you like. But what do we do when things go wrong? What do you do as that professional athlete when you have a season-ending injury and you've built your life around playing a sport and then all of a sudden that's taken from you? What do you do when crisis hits and that family identity is fractured, is shaken? What do you do when that that hobby is taken from you, that ability to do this or do that is gone? What do you do when chaos enters into your life? My hope, my hope is you do as Abram did. You turn to the Lord. My hope is that you see while those things can be good, your ultimate identity, your ultimate source of help, your ultimate source of hope, of comfort, of surety must be in the Lord. For everything else that we could place our hope, our trust in can be taken, can fade can fail us. Think about our scene this morning. Abram is in a state of spiritual unrest. He's coming off a major failure. He's lived with that failure for 13 years. He, he looks at the son, Ishmael, a son that he loves, and he's reminded that this isn't the son that God promised, and he has no other. Year after year, he continues to remain not to be able to have a child with Sarai. He looks at this son. He raises this child as his own He needs to be reminded of who God is and what God has promised. And that's what the Lord does for him here. The Lord brings about restoration of Abram, and he does this through a covenant. And in chapter 15, we talked about covenant, but it was more in the informal sense. Here, we get to the legal covenant making, the covenant ritual, and all the parts and pieces of it. God covenants with Abram here. Declaring who he is, being God. God declares who he is. God also declares who Abram is. And God seals that with the sign of the covenant. We see this in the three movements of our passage, and I encourage you to follow along with me as we explain why this is important. And and why it's important is that God relates to us in a very similar way today. God covenants with his people still. And God defines who He is before us. God defines who we are before Him. And God seals that with a covenant promise. And so let us consider this moment in the life of Abram and consider how God does the same for us. And God begins this path of restoration. God begins walking Abram back to where he needs to be by telling Abram who he is. And you may find yourself wondering why. Doesn't Abram know who God is? I mean, we've been talking about him for several chapters now. He's talked with God. God's talked with him. And in the one sense, the answer is yes. Abram knows who God is. He doesn't need to be told who God is. But in another sense, he absolutely needs to be told. 
he needs to be reminded of who the Lord is, the one that he serves, the one that has made these promises before him. Also, it's important because this is a covenant, this is a formal agreement. One of the first steps in a covenant agreement, in one particular to this, um, in the ancient Near Eastern world, there was a covenant kind called a suzerain vassal covenant or suzerain vassal contract where you had a, a greater lord over a lesser person and an agreement or contract was made, you started by declaring who you were. You made them know who you were so that they could trust what you were saying. Because it wouldn't make sense if you promised something to somebody and you weren't able to do it. It wouldn't make sense to offer something if you couldn't back it up. And so one of the first steps is declaring the parties. We see that in our passage uh, verse 1, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. And in this, we learn several things about who God is. Many of your Bibles likely capitalize the name Lord in this section. That's common in the English language to denote the personal name for God, Yahweh. It would be in the Hebrew. This will be the name that God gives to Moses at the burning bush. This is the name that will be so precious to the Hebrew people, they won't speak it for fear of violating the first three commandments. This is a, a name given only to the God of the Bible. Yahweh, this couldn't be claimed by anyone else. In, in fact, that name, that title... Um, later in Scripture and, and also in history will be referred to as the Hebrew God, Yahweh, the Hebrew God. And so when Abram hears that, he knows very clearly who he's talking to. He's talking to Yahweh. He's talking to the God that will be precious to the people of Israel, the descendants of Abraham. But he doesn't just stop there. He, he continues on in defining himself. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, I am God Almighty. Now, this is another one. Your Bible may have translated that Almighty. Your Bible may have translated that one in several ways. You may be familiar with the Hebrew there, El Shaddai. El Shaddai is what God labeled himself here. And Almighty is sufficient. It's a sufficient translation. I don't want to put mistrust in the Bible translation here. I think it works for what's intended. But I love how one commentator really tries to explain what God is impressing by this title. El Shaddai doesn't just mean Almighty. According to this commentator, it says, El Shaddai is a God who so constrains nature that it does His will and so subdues it that it bows to and subserves grace. God is saying here, I hold everything in my hand, and I can and I will act upon it as I want. That's what almighty means. Almighty, able to act. He holds it all, so much so that the reality itself will bend to His will. He is El Shaddai. Now, why is that significant for Abram? Why, why would God remind him of that? Well, what is Abram's problem? He can't have children. A natural biological problem. 
He's been working on this for many, 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 many years, almost 70 some odd years to this point, and he still cannot have a child with his wife. What is God saying here in this statement, in his defining, declaring who he is? Even that's not a problem for me. Even that is not a problem for me. See how God declaring who he is is already promising blessing for Abram. God is defining Abram's life by defining himself. And we know that Abram needs this reminder. We know that if Abram knew this or believed this, he's forgotten. Because what does he do in the previous chapter? He's been told again and again that God would provide children for him, but then he goes out and tries to seek it on his own. He takes a sinful action. He marries a slave woman. He um, gets her pregnant. It causes strife with his wife. He basically leaves this woman for dead. She runs out into the wilderness. She's told by God to go back. He's caused all these issues on his own, and he had to be reminded that God will can and is able to do what he said. He's tried it his way, and God's saying, now let's do it mine. And this God is a God, not just one to be loved, not just one to be in awe of, not just one to be in worship of, but we know that he says, walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you, and multiply you greatly. He is a God to be reverently feared. He's a God to be respected. He is a God to understand that you are in a holy one's presence. And Abram got the point. We, we know he got the point, for in the very next words it says what? He fell on his face. Abram finally remembered. It took some time, but he remembered who was talking to him. He remembered who is speaking. My God is speaking. A holy, righteous, vengeful God is speaking. I'm in, in His presence. I bow before Him. And before we move on to the, to, the, to the latter parts of this covenant, let me just remind us this morning, this is the appropriate response to us meeting with God. So often people take, don't take this seriously. We, we don't fully weigh what it means to be in the presence of our God. We don't fully consider that we are before a holy and righteous God who sees all and who knows all. We talked about it in, in Sunday school, in our Sunday school class in marriage as we're weighing our sin versus our spouse's sin in a conflict. And the author has a point in there. It said, would it change how you address that situation to realize God sees everything? And while you may be judging from your perspective, he's judging from his also. Wouldn't that change how you weighed the sin? Your sin, your grievance against their grievance, when you realize it's also being measured yours against God's? That's how we must respond to God. We must reverently fear him the fear of the lord is the beginning of knowledge fools despise wisdom and instruction and so as we consider god bringing abram back we consider god restoring him he starts with who he is and now now that abram gets that he can be told who he is before god and we see this in our second section 
Look with me at verses 4 to 8. And so you start a covenant agreement with the suzerain declaring who he is. You see the suzerain declaring his relationship to the vassal, the vassal being the lesser party, uh, and for the most part the one receiving here, the, the one that is benefiting from the covenant contract. And typically at this point you'd see the same thing. The suzerain declares who they are, and then the vassal declares who they are. But that's actually not what takes place. Look at what happens instead. Um, God just says, he's making a covenant. Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. So one, it is a covenant. We're being clear here. And two, what's being promised is you will father a multitude of nations. This is what you are getting. This is kind of the title, the title of this covenant. Father of a multitude of nations. But Abram doesn't define his own self. Abram does not declare who he is. God does. Catch that here. Abram, the lesser party, doesn't even get to define himself. God defines him for him. And this is important. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but you shall be called Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. Now let's think about this for a moment. Abram got his name from his father, from Terah. Terah named him. And this name means father of many or father of multitudes. God here renames him Abram to Abraham. Interestingly enough, linguistically, they actually mean the same thing. They both mean father of many, father of multitude, father of nations. And so in a technical sense, there's not much changed in adding Ham to the end of his name. But what is significant? Why could God name Abram here, rename him? Because he belonged to him. Just like Adam in the garden. God said, go and name the animals. And so he did. Why? Because they belonged to God. And God in his authority said, these are mine. Do this for me. Here, Abram, now Abraham, belongs to who? God. And so God declares who he is and who he will be. And so while it's actually being said the same thing, Terah names him Abram, saying that you will be a father of many, hoping that it'll be true. God now says, you are Abraham. And note the, the, the tense shift here. Remember what was promised, what, what Abram wanted. He wanted to be a father of multitudes of nations. God says, your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you father of a multitude of nations. It's already accomplished. It's done. It will be so. Not I hope so, not I think so, not maybe. I have done it. And so when God says your name is Abraham, he's saying your name is Abraham because this is what will happen. That's remarkable. I don't even know if Abraham fully appreciated um, what was happening there. But God's not done yet. God continues to promise even more blessing for him. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. Not just a child, but exceedingly fruitful. I will make you into nations. Kings shall come from you. You'll not only have a line, you'll have a royal line. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant 
to be God to you and to your offspring after you. I will give to you and your offspring land of your sojourning, all the land of Canaan, precious land, beautiful land, rich land, land he's looked at already. It was occupied. and He was like, eh, maybe not. God said, nope, that's going to be yours for an everlasting possession. And I will be their God. Probably the greatest promise there in that statement. All of those things are great. All of those things are wonderful. But that last clause there, I will be their God. You have to ask yourself anytime, and and those of you that are into business, you, you do this a lot, is this a good deal? Am I getting a fair trade here? Is it worth it? And if we were in his shoes, would, how would we answer? Well, I hope you would answer absolutely. Because what do we want as parents? What is our prayer? What is our daily prayer? What is our desire? That our children will walk with the Lord. Isn't that what we want more than anything else? That they would know and trust and rest in the Lord? And what is God saying here? For an eternity, you will have descendants who walk with the Lord. Abram, you better agree. (laughs) You better agree right now because it doesn't get better than that. You're going to have children. That's great. They're going to be kings. That's great. They're going to have a possession. That's great. But more than all of that, they will know their God and will walk with Him. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. I don't don't know about you and I I don't know how it works. But can't you imagine in heaven every time a believer arrives and Abram comes and hugs them and welcomes them in as the distant grandfather to them? We believe that we who are in Christ are part of this promise. We are that fulfillment. Every time a believer enters into heaven, if they get to talk with Abraham, he gets to see them and welcome them in and see this promise fulfilled. God, still to this day, well over 2,000 years later, still going, remember? I told you so. Remember? I told you so. Remember? I told you so. Over and over and over again. See how when God defines and declares who He is, it radically changes our lives? See how when we fully understand who God is, we can truly be who we are and who we're called to be? It changed Abraham. It it radically changed Abraham. And it does so for us today as well. It continues to do so for us. When we understand our God and we submit ourselves to Him, our life has changed. For now and forevermore. And this is not just a promise made with words. This is a promise sealed. It was sealed with the covenant sign. It was marked by circumcision. And we find this in our final verses. And at this point in the covenant contract, the parties have been named. Uh, The terms have been agreed to. Now you would get to the stipulations and the warnings. And so... All right, we know who's talking. We know what we're asking for. We know how it's going to be delivered. Now, what are the clauses, if you will? 
Well, for Abram, there was, or Abraham, I'm going to do it. I'm going to get there. Um, there's two. There's two clauses for Abraham. One, keep the covenant. Keep the covenant. What did he have to do to keep the covenant? Have children. Have children. That's the problem, right? He's not having children. The covenant is to have children. Have children that will fulfill this promise. Well, God's going to get to that. We don't have to wait much longer. Just a few more chapters. Two, as you have those children, or as you bring people into your house um, through purchasing them or, or through generations, circumcise them. As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you, throughout their generations. This you shall keep between me and you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin. It shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old shall be circumcised. Every male, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner, he who is born and he who is bought shall be circumcised. Circumcise the men, the males. This would mark God's covenant and would signify that they were of Abraham. It would remind them of this promise and set them apart. Now, one thing we have to understand here, this, Israel was not the only group of people circums, being circumcised. Other nations did this. But they did so for cultural reasons. They, they did so for their own desires. God said, do this because I have said so. God said, do this because it marks you as mine. It sets you apart. And I, I've wrestled with how to, how to, to bring this up, and, and I, I certainly don't want to be crass. But as we'll see as we continue in this chapter... Why do you think God uses this? Why is this the mark of his people? What has Abram, or Abraham done to this point constantly, consistently? He has doubted God could fulfill it. He has doubted that God could do what he says he's going to do. And again, pardon me, but just hear me out. God, therefore, carves into the tool that Abraham will need to fulfill this promise so that every time that tool is used, he will be reminded that God is a God who keeps his promise. Think about that. Not, not too much, but think about that. God is making sure you're not left wondering, I did this. Not you. You tried for 99 years on your own. I did this. And you will remember it from now forevermore. And you won't forget it. That's how far God's willing to go to make sure his promise is kept. That is how far God is willing to go to make sure Abraham doesn't forget it. And actually, in a sense, about what I'd call divine comedy. So much so, this is so important, this is so significant, that God throws in a warning. Any uncircumcised men among you, any uncircumcised males, whether they're of your house or um, bought by your money, they will be cut off, cast away separated from the people of God. They will be shunned from the house. They have broken my covenant. God commands obedience. God's people would be set apart. They were told not to act like the nations around them. They were not to worship the false gods of the other countries. 
they were to trust in Yahweh alone as their Lord. And by taking Him by faith, they would be saved. Special, set apart, unique, unlike any others, because they belong to Him. Now I want you to make sure you heard that last part. By taking God by faith, the people, Abraham and his descendants, would be saved, blessed, and set apart. Isn't that the same way God saves today? Isn't that still the same way God interacts with His people? If you but trust in Him by faith, you are saved, set apart, marked not by circumcision of the flesh, but in the new covenant, marked by the waters of baptism. Sometimes we'll have a baptistry um, sitting here, um, depending on need, with our water in it. Marked not by circumcision, but by water. And that marking sets you apart. It declares you part of the people of God. Now, as we will learn, not all that were of Israel were true Israel. It's interesting to note, and I encourage you this week to read ahead and find out who was the first one circumcised. Hint, it wasn't Abraham, and it wasn't Isaac. But that marked you different, set apart for him. My prayer for you this morning is that you understand a little better about who our God is. My, my prayer is that through this service that we have gone through, you come to some deeper understanding about him, whether that was in the songs we sang, the prayers we offered, the confessions we've had. May this knowledge drive you to humble reliance upon him. As you understand better who he is, may that better define who you are. You're a person, you're a people in need of him. And as that is done, may you remember the promises that we have before us in the covenants, the covenant, the covenant signs. In the New Testament, our signs are baptism and the Lord's Supper. In just a moment, we will observe that sacrament. And as it's done, remember. Remember what's, been taken, what's taken place for you. Remember what God has done for you. And as you think about your own life, as you think about your struggles, your difficulties, your challenges, I pray for you, dear believer, that you don't define yourself by anything other than I belong to the Lord. I am His. I belong to Christ. Because that is enough. And if you are in Christ, there's no, precious, no more precious designation that you can have other than I am a child of God. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the life of Abraham. We, we thank you that he gives us an honest depiction of how we are. We have moments, seasons, times of faith, great faith. Faith en enough to take a small number within our household and take on mighty armies, warring nations, to rescue a family member. And at the same time, we are also all so capable of trusting in ourselves our own ability to provide that which we want, which we desire. And all it does is drive us back to you. Lord, would we understand all the more who you are this day. By understanding who you are, would we better understand who we are and who we are in relation to you. 
And Father, if there be anyone here that does not know you, would the weight of that fall upon them heavy this hour? Lord, would they be convicted and compelled to turn to you this day, Lord, that they too might be numbered amongst the children of God? Children who fulfill this promise, who fulfill this blessing, who are heirs to the covenant. Not by what they've done, not by who they are, but because of you, our God and our Savior. I thank you for this, O Lord, and I pray that you would be with us now as we continue on in the service. In Christ's name, amen.